Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. And there's always signs. There's the different coloration. The bracts are falling. It kind of browns up around the, the pleat. And then it might have been growing four, five, six inches a day, and then it slows down to an inch or less a day. And that's another really good sign. Usually, when there's news that something smellies on its way, folks steer very clear. But that's not the case for fans of rare flowers, even the foully fragrant ones. And for people in that category who are lucky enough to be in St. Louis in the next few days, there's an olfactory and visual treat in store at the Missouri Botanical Garden. Here's producer Maya Norfleet with more about the source of that forthcoming stink. The Missouri Botanical Gardens is expecting two corpse flowers to bloom this week. The scientific name of this plant is Amorphophallus titanum, meaning large misshapen phallus. And its nickname being corpse flower lets you know generally how it smells. It's native to Sumatra, Indonesia, but here in St. Louis, there are about 20 in various stages of growth. The corpse flower that's in the spotlight this week is named Octavia, and her so-called clone yet to be named. Emily Coaletti is a horticulturalist specializing in the aeroid collection, which includes the corpse flower as well as plants like the peace lily. For the last 20 years, Emily has cared for the growth of the garden's corpse flowers and cultivated relationships with other botanical gardens across the country. In fact, that's how the garden came into possession with their first handful of these large, smelly plants. Here's Emily Coaletti sharing how the Missouri Botanical Gardens got its first corpse flowers from the Huntington Museum in San Marino, California in 2008. Well, with the Huntington, actually, Dr. Raven was the director at the time, and a co-scientist co-director of the Huntington they were they're good friends and I don't know if it was a joke or if it was actually just being friendly or if it was just both hey you don't have a bloom we do here try it we'll give you some we'll give you some tubers so that you can have a bloom and and we we have had several blooms from those five tubers so and obviously Octavia split twice so she's quite happy here Octavia, the corpse flower that's to bloom this week, was one of those five tubers the Missouri Botanical Gardens received in 2008. Think of the tubers as a large bulb that grows underground. Octavia has since produced two clones and is the garden's 13th and 14th corpse flower blooms, which is no easy feat for a plant native to the rainforest of Indonesia. I asked Emily, what conditions make for a happy corpse flower tuber? So again, it's just the age of the plant. The, you know, they say they have to have good temperatures, 80 degrees and high humidity. 
and they should be relatively some some people you talk to say they grow them wet other people you talk to they say they grow them dry other you know so every institution seems to have their own way of doing it so it's just like any other plant if it's doing well you just continue doing that now i've i've experienced with some plants here at the garden and the, the aeroids is they grow better in the climatron and they honestly grow water things totally different than they are they're watered in a greenhouse so even in the same institution or even it, things are grown totally different so it's kind of like the micro environment and if you've got the right micro environment and they're happy you just continue to do what you're doing Emily Coletti spends a lot of time observing the garden's corpse flowers and other aeroids in their collection and has been around for every bloom. The flowers don't all bloom at once. She says that they have been lucky to have just as many blooms as other gardens with hundreds of corpse flower tubers, but the blooms come with a smell that is also unique each time. Emily did burst my bubble a bit. Not all corpse flowers smell super bad, but according to someone who's seen these plants grow from seed to flower, Emily says the smell is something to behold. Some blooms are just painfully stinky. Um, we've had blooms, we've had a variety of intensity, let's call it, of smell. And I don't really, I couldn't really pinpoint it totally what would make it one stink worse than others. But we have had the intensity be as bad as get, pulling into our parking lot opening the door and smelling it in the parking lot and then happily going in line and standing there and smelling it the whole night and then getting up close to it and smell it more or barely having a scent at all and going but I came to smell it they do seem to pulsate their scent so it's kind of like uh having passing gas so uh that's that's always interesting too and i i i thought i was imagining it for uh, several of the blooms and then i did read that it, you know when you read something about a plant you don't always remember it until you've actually experienced it or anything in life i guess and that was one of those so but what does it smell like? Sometimes it smells as just cooking broccoli in combination with dirty socks, in combination with just, oh, dirty diapers, opening up a trash can that has had rotting whatever inside. So just anything a combination of all those kind of stinkinesses all at one time and then again it just kind of depends on the plant itself and if it's going to be as disgusting as the last one so uh and then it it, it doesn't stink until it when the female flowers this is the worst smell is when the female flowers are becoming receptive to be pollinated so when it starts to open when, when everybody wants to come see it and smell it is when those those flowers those female flowers at the base of the vase of the 
of the inflorescence is just getting sticky and getting smelly and it's actually heating up to like a Oh, nearly 100 degrees. When you say heating up, the flower itself is heating up? Well, the spadix itself is heating up. So, I mean, and that happens because that's, even in, in the wild, it's, you know, you have to have the female flower and the pollen from a separate individual. And they may not, you may not have a flower for a mile away or so. So in order to attract the pollinators, you have to really have a smelly smelly scent in order to get those flies and beetles to come to the plant. Corpse flowers are endangered in the wild which means there are more at botanical gardens than in their native ecosystems. Institutions like the Missouri Botanical Garden help keep plants from full extinction and helps us learn more about the many life forms on earth. Many of us got um, cultivated tubers at the same time that that the Huntington like sent out, sent tubers to us. They also sent tubers to other institutions. So they're kind, and that's really what our goal is at being a botanical garden is to share that wealth. And hopefully we all can somehow at some point because they are endangered in the wild, perhaps we'll be able, we'll, well, we, they won't be gone from the world, but they may be gone from the wild. So, will we ever to be? Will we ever be able to reintroduce them to the wild? There's less than a thousand in. They say there's less than a thousand in the wild, so they are endangered. But there's a lot because you have one. You have a flaw, uh, an inflorescence that blooms. You'll have the capacity of having for about 400 berries on there. If you have 400 berries, there's one or two, generally two seeds in each one. So you have the ability to have hundreds of seedlings and then from those seedlings, you can distribute those and and then not only can you do seedlings, you can do cuttings. Cuttings, they're rather easy to do by cuttings. So there's a variety of ways to keep the um, species, like I said, going. Emily told me another way that they are keeping the corpse flower from extinction is by working with other gardens across the country. Like with any species, biodiversity is important to survival, so the garden doesn't pollinate within their own plants. You have to get pollen from another institution, but um, interestingly enough, uh, Chicago Botanical Garden has become the um, pollen gatherer of the Amorphophallus titanum. And um, they've been working for some several years now on um, basically getting to know the pedigree of the actually the Morphophallus titanums throughout throughout basically the world. They've collected the DNA from many institutions, from many different um, you know um, individuals, and uh, when you when you contact them for pollen they actually do a very educated um, calculation as to which is the best pollen they should should share with you in order to get seed to to um, you know maintain the integrity of 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 the um, 
the species itself because we have so many from the same propagules throughout that you don't want to interbreed even in in the plant kingdom you want to keep you want to keep their lineages you know diverse as possible this is reminding me of the netflix show the crown have you heard of this yes 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 <laughs> it's like royalty like we got to get the best of the best from this corner of the of the world in this country in fact that's what they're they're, they're this last um article uh they came out with is telling us to do is because you know indonesia has you know and different ends of the world have different pollen from different sources we need to start doing international pollen trading and not just domestic so that we have a more diverse um, individuals that we produce considering that emily is constantly surrounded by plants all day i asked her what makes the amorphophallus titanum special to her well i guess it's the rarity the of of the plant I guess not knowing anything about it at first and then being actually a caretaker of it um, for 20 years and having now 13 and the, our, the Mobot's 13th and 14th bloom. Um, we had our first bloom back in 2012. So, and I was here for that. I, I've actually been there, here for all, all of them. So, um, guess that's pretty special I don't you know but you know if you walk in through the greenhouse and you see the different inflorescence they're all so different for each of the genera that um, they're all so different and they're all all the same all at, all at once just like people um, so it's it's just when you give tours of the greenhouse it's always the it's always people's favorite to see to find out about, just to get information about, but mostly if they're able to smell. And it was funny, the other day I read a quote from somebody who just had one bloom, and he basically said, the, the plant smells in order to attract its pollinators to, to make sure that it, it you know, sustains itself. But it also attracts humans who want to also smell this very stinky plant. <laughs> After Octavia and her clone bloom, their growth cycle continues. Octavia will go through a vegetative phase for the next year or so before it'll be ready to produce another bloom. Emily shared the growth cycle with me and let me know that much of the why behind its growth cycle and what triggers a tuber to bloom is still something of a mystery what exactly it is that that triggers that i i don't know that anybody knows yet um but so and and that leaf will stay up anywhere in general from nine nine months to a year and then it will die back and it'll take several months before it will send up another leaf and but once we've experienced here once that it it blooms, it will go through the entire cycle and then rebloom again. So basically that entire cycle takes about two years. So you got, so when Octavia loses its, its inflorescence and it dies back, it'll, in about three months, it'll probably, within three months, it'll probably send up another leaf. 
and then it'll stay up for a year and then it'll kind of go dormant or go to sleep again and it'll send up another another flower so that's just a general and it just takes so long for it to mature for now emily and the rest of the garden staff as well as fans of the corpse flower are playing the waiting game everyone wants to know when will octavia bloom emily says there are some ways of predicting it's more observation like most most science that i experience has always been observation i know when to water a plant by looking at it, it the color you know and such well so when when octavia or any other bloom has got ready to open there's always signs there's the different colorations that are on the on the space there are different the bracts are falling at a certain stage like they say that the day the last brack falls is the day or two later is when it's going to bloom you have the coloring up the skirt like there's a skirt around around the uh, spadix and it, it kind of browns up around the, the pleat and then it might have been growing four five six inches a day and then it slows down to an inch or less a day and that's another really good sign so all you can do is it's like having a baby the signs are there when the contractions start that's when it goes so when the heat when it starts to heat up then it's gonna it's gonna bloom that was emily coletti horticulturalist at the missouri botanical garden she cares for the aeroid collection at the garden which includes the corpse flowers that draw crowds waiting to experience the smelly plant for themselves octavia the corpse flower and her unnamed clone are expected to bloom sometime this week you can find more information on the corpse flowers and tickets to experience the blooms and their funk at the Missouri Botanical Garden website. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.